Funding for The Spark is provided by Capital Blue Cross, focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like Capital Blue Cross Connect Health and Wellness Centers, which provide in-person services and inspire healthy living. Learn more at CapitalBlueCross.com. The Spark is also supported by UPMC's orthopedics team, offering hip, knee, joint, spine, and back treatments. Learn more at upmc.com slash centralpaortho. As a teenager, David Rosenwasser, a Hershey native, had a unique hobby of collecting vintage furniture. He was ostracized for this hobby as a kid, but later became a successful vintage store owner and millennial design authority. David, who is now the co-CEO and founder of Rarify, and his colleague, Jeremy Bellotti, co-CEO and founder of Rarify, join us on The Spark to share their story and the importance of their work in the world of fast furniture. David and Jeremy, thank you both so much for joining us today. So David, tell me a little bit about your childhood and where your passion for furniture designs came from. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and thanks again for having us on, uh, on the show here. So I grew up in, uh, in Hershey and uh, my, my parents had, uh, had grown up first on chicken farm, my dad, but then in Miami Beach. And so my mom had seen an Eames lounge here, which is this famous and very important uh, chair back when she was a kid. And so I guess to fast forward to, uh, kind of growing up to, to kind of a connection to design, we had, uh, I got to see an Eames lounge chair for the first time when I was about a 12 or 13 year old. And, uh, that basically sparked this amazing interest in design and architecture, which, um, has kind of shaped where we are today. Wow. Yeah. And you mentioned we. Jeremy, can you tell me a little bit about your passion behind furniture designs and where your connection to David came from? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so right now I'm a, a designer and an engineer. Um, and you know what I do now is I, I work on developing new technology for the design industry. Um, but, you know, originally... Uh, David and I had actually met when we went to school for architecture. Um, so, you know, the first day that I kind of showed up at college, uh, David was the first person I met. Um, you know, right away we were getting into you know, productive arguments and, and discussions about design and art and architecture. And, uh, <laughs> you know, over the next five years, we just found as many excuses as we could to hang out with each other, work together and, uh, you know, continue to, to argue with each other. And, um, <laughs> Uh, yeah. And eventually we kind of just knew that we wanted to work together and start a business. And, and we were both this sort of, you know, we had this kind of obsessive personality type where we, we just loved learning about design and the things that we were working on. And uh, it, it, it blossomed into, you know, what is now Rarify. Wow. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about Rarify, Jeremy. Sure. So uh, Rarify is a, a company that offers authenticated furniture. Uh, from some of the most collectible 20th and 21st century designers. Um, so you might know Eames, like David mentioned, like Corbusier meets Van der Rohe, Florence Knoll. So um, people that were kind of innovators back in the 20th century doing really amazing work in design all the way up until today uh, and people that are doing design work now um, kind of following in those footsteps. 
Hmm. And two of the innovators in the 20th century for uh, modern furniture were Charles and Ray Eames. So David, why did you take an interest in their work in particular? That's a good question. Uh, the, I guess first off, it was, it was the furniture I was first exposed to as a kid. And as I continued to learn more and more about them, I realized just how important they were as, um, as technological innovators in plywood, in fiberglass, in innovative metal construction, and in really transforming the design within the 21st century in a way that was accessible to really the, uh, the audience, the post-war audience in the United States, the middle class, and, and really an international audience that hadn't otherwise been exposed to accessible design in the past. And so as I first saw my first uh, Eames lounge chair, I, I was obsessed and started kind of saving up money to, to buy my first Eames chair. And, and so what happened was I would end up looking on Craigslist uh, and kind of trying to get a hold of the, the cheapest pieces that I could, which ended up leading to uh, kind of restoring and, and obsessively uh, looking, restoring, and then flipping pieces as a, as a high school student. Wow. And you were able to uh, get those pieces with a minimum wage job at a pharmacy, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I was working at the, at the Hershey pharmacy after my ice cream scooping job had, uh, had come to a halt. And yeah, slowly started as noted saving up and kind of realized upon selling my first piece that you know, selling one chair could fund a whole summer of, uh, of work and uh, realize that restoration and taking really nice photos of these pieces could be uh, hugely helpful to get more value out of them. So the business element really didn't happen intentionally. It was really a way of trying to build a collection. Funny enough, it was, uh, I was told that architects didn't get paid very much and so if I wanted to have, my thought was if I wanted to have a really nice collection of furniture, I would collect it all before architecture school, which really doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and I recorded it at this architect's office in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. And he was nice enough to let me use that space as long as there were uh, office vacancies. David, I don't know any teenagers who <laughs> collect modern furniture. I'm sorry to say, but it's very mm -hmm. fascinating uh, that you had that hobby at that time. So how did your peers react to that unique hobby? Yeah, it was it was something I actually kind of uh, kept off to the sidelines and, and was a little embarrassed of because I realized that it wasn't wasn't normal or wasn't something that other peers were were actively you know doing. So what I actually found was that others around me only started taking an interest when they realized that I was actually making money from, from doing this. And of course, that wasn't my goal whatsoever. But uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely unusual. I was interested in the arts, ceramics, wood turning, things like that, and making things as a teenager. But um, the, the hoarding and, and uh, ac accumulation of a, of a collection of 20th century design was, was uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, a hobby, a hobby and pastime that wasn't wasn't exactly exposed to the public. You talked about the revenue that you were able to generate from this hobby. Can you give us some insight on that? Yeah the the first revelation was buying this famous Eames lounge chair in Ottoman, and let's say it was about fifteen hundred dollars, 
and realizing that after restoration, I would put it on eBay and someone paid something like $3,500 or $4,000 for a chair, which wow. at the time having about $2,000 in my bank account, and that was my kind of operating um, money, that was huge for me. And one of those chairs sold to a gentleman in the Philippines who then proceeded to reach out and say that uh, he wanted to buy a whole shipping container worth of furniture, a 40-foot container worth of furniture to start a furniture store in the Philippines and asked if I had enough furniture stockpile that I could make that happen. And so this was May of my senior year of high school. And of course, the problem I had was this architect who was so nice in letting me store furniture, I needed to get it out of there at some point. And so the timing was perfect. Wow. And so we put together a list. This was right around 2012, 2013. And he wire transferred over, over the course of the summer, $120,000 to buy out the entire collection that I had accumulated during high school, which I, I had never seen that kind of any, anything near that kind of capital. And that became the seed money for the vintage business that I then ran uh, for the next few years. So what's amazing is today, post-architecture school with Jeremy and I at Cornell and, and grad school at MIT and at Harvard, which was amazing as an opportunity. We now have 40,000 square feet of warehouse and showroom space in Lebanon, PA, which is actually an old Bethlehem steel railroad spike plant. Wow. And the reason we've continued to stay in that location is number one, because of the amazing community and, and resources that we've developed around central Pennsylvania. So that's refinishers, that's uh, Meldoc, these amazing shippers who we've worked with for now about a decade. And also because we get to, much like our furniture, reuse and adapt this amazing industrial space into very useful space for us in our furniture business today. And it's, it's a luxury to have that sort of space because that's, that's not something that our colleagues in New York, let's say, have the benefit of with this kind of smaller storefronts. You talked about not really being interested in the money that you would make out of the business at first. Is that one of the keys to having a successful business and turning a hobby that is just built out of pure passion into something that is really beneficial financially? I think so, in that the passion drives drives everything and keeps you motivated. And so I was spending evenings and weekends and during architecture school, every, every little break, two-day uh, break that we would have, I would go back home to Hershey and work on restoration. And so, yeah, it was the passion that drove it. And certainly the money was not a logical driver also because I was, I was always reinvesting the money back in the business and buying more furniture. So even when it extended beyond a personal collection, the goal was to continue building and building this collection of pieces, which yes, was offered to the public for sale, but uh, was not to go and kind of frivolously uh, have extra income. Yeah. You talked about your shift into restoration work. Can you talk to me a little bit about the inspiration behind that? Absolutely. My dad growing up was a brilliant ophthalmologist and, and he passed away a couple of years ago, unfortunately. Um, but was always in the garage working on taking apart watches and mechanical objects and restoring cars was a huge part of the kind of family culture that we grew up in. 
And so I was intimidated always to be working on cars because I didn't like metalwork and welding at the time, but found furniture to be a skill that I could kind of approach. And when I inevitably had problems and challenges, I had this amazing resource, my dad uh, next to me, who I never wanted to kind of admit I was wrong. or didn't know how to do something up until I had no other choice. And, and so he, he was an amazing mentor and kind of always knew, knew how to fix everything, which was amazing. You talked about your dad as an inspiration for you uh, to get into restoration work. So what was it like to have one of your primary mentors for this work pass away? And did you have to overcome any challenges to continue the work that you were doing with restoration? Yeah. Uh, what was what was amazing about being able to work with my dad as a teenager and even during college was that there was so much he was able to teach me in the time that he was alive. And so, yeah, when he passed away about a year and a half ago, it was, it was devastating and, and, you know, missed him every day. Um, though I, I learned a ton from him. And, and so um, the restoration is, is something I'm so grateful to have kind of worked with him on and, and wood turning was another hobby we worked on together. So um, that was really phenomenal. Yeah. I, I read that what you didn't learn from your dad came from forums, online, YouTube videos, and trial and error. What were some of the skills that required uh, the trial and error? And did some of those failures cost you any money along the way? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So what's what's particularly unique about design from the 20th century and beyond, so things, let's say, that are primarily post-World War II, are that manufacturing technologies played such an important role in the design and development of those pieces. And so what that means is that most of the furniture we work with at Rarify on a day-to-day basis that are in the vintage domain have been manufactured and made in a factory. And so both for authentication and for repair and restoration, what we're trying to imagine is how these were first created in the factory, what materials and processes were used, and then how to reverse engineer that process so that we can be as, as true to the original designs as possible. And while I, I would say that certainly not all of the pieces we, we deal with require restoration, we have a, a pretty huge stockpile within our workshop of wooden furniture, fiberglass, plastics, metal, things sometimes that are handcrafted uh, that often require very unique uh, finishes and, and um, approaches to those pieces that that it are hard to look up on, a, on an online forum or on YouTube. So Jeremy, what is the key to telling if a piece of furniture is in good enough condition to be repaired or restored? Hmm. Yeah, good question. Well, we take a sort of a, an interesting approach um, to making those kind of determinations. So you know, a lot of the products that we work with are, are brand new, right? From from the original manufacturers, so, you know, that's kind of what we consider an authentic piece of furniture. Um, but the ones that uh, are vintage, for example, and are particularly special, you know, we'll we'll get them in and we'll take a look at them and decide whether or not we're going to restore them. Um, and that decision is a, a pretty important one because. Uh, a lot of the folks that are looking for these vintage pieces are actually collecting them and, and the new pieces as well. You know, they might be enthusiasts or collectors. Um, and so sometimes if you kind of do too much restoration, then all of a sudden you've sort of stripped the originality, quote unquote, from the piece. 
Um, so uh, for uh, an Eames chair from the early 1940s, um, you know, we're going to be very cautious about even touching any bit of dust or dirt that's on it, um, if it's a very rare piece. Um, however, something that's, you know, maybe a bit later from, you know, the early 2000s uh, that just needs a little touch up, you know, we'll just clean. Um, we will kind of try to restore uh, as much of that to its original condition, being very careful and true to the original finishes as possible. And we work with a number of experts actually around Pennsylvania who do that work uh, beautifully. Um, but we never try to kind of introduce anything new, unusual, or inauthentic into the equation. Uh, we always try and stay true to the history of that object and how it was originally manufactured. Um, and that actually takes a lot of research. Um, David has a, a huge library uh, of books next to him that he's always referencing uh, to kind of look things like that up. Um, so it, it's quite a process and um, being meticulous about that uh, is really important uh, because the folks that are buying things from us uh, need to be able to trust uh, our process. So David, what's your perspective on fast furniture and why is it important for people to buy pieces of value? Good question. Fast furniture as a phenomenon maybe is, let's say about 20 years old and Maybe came to be possibly because of the kind of international, uh, the ability to bring pieces in from overseas and, and to manufacture very inexpensively. Uh, that has its place for those that can't necessarily afford. We, we understand that certainly, but we like to look at a couple of different approaches. One would be reuse. And that's why we love looking for vintage and used furniture. We, we love to embrace that and um, bring in pieces, even if they're five years old, 10 years old, not necessarily always collectible. And secondly, I think longevity plays a huge role in that. The reason we're not enthusiastic about fast furniture is because much of that furniture is not meant to last more than five years. Whereas even pieces from Herman Miller, from Knoll, made in the 1950s, some of those were intended for uh, the masses and meant to be affordable and yet are still being collected and used 70 years later. That's, that's the type of furniture and the type of uh, kind of customer and collecting that we like to encourage, buying things that you'll be able to use for decades, but also hopefully that they can be resold, maintain their value, and ideally become collector's pieces. So what are some tips for people with limited budgets that would like to add pieces of value to their home and avoid buying knockoff furniture if possible? Well, I'm, I'm actually glad you brought this up because, you know, one of the most important values for me and David and for our company is this idea that, you know, we believe in education and sharing knowledge about design. You know, our, our biggest role models were uh, people like Jenny Sabin, Skylar Tibbetts, kind of people in, in research and design and technology that we worked with um, who taught us you know, how important it is to kind of share these things and how valuable that can be. Um, so, you know, what we actually have tried to do with our presence and social media has become an amazing tool for educating people. You know, on Instagram, for example, we have about 50,000 people that watch videos that we create on tips like this. Um, 
And, and we try to tell those folks to kind of not so much um, follow trends or uh, kind of design styles, but more to educate themselves on the way things are made, right? How to identify high quality materials, right? Like what types of wood would you look for? How do you look and find a good quality finish? Um, but then also to kind of uh, understand that there are really high quality designs that exist at all price points. Um, and so uh, in our collection, we've kind of tried to collect and, and sell some of those products as well. So the Componibili, for example, is this amazing Italian um, storage cart. Uh, that's one of the most important designs of the 20th century. And you can get that for just a little over $100. Um, so there's a huge range. Um, and you're just learning about design, enjoying design, watching videos about it, having a little bit of obsession, you know, like we did, um, is the best way that you can kind of train your eye to find things that are high quality anywhere, whether it's, you know, at a, um, a vintage shop, right? And you're looking for something uh, high quality at a low price or whether you're investing in something more expensive. You know, it's the same process. Well, it's honestly been a pleasure speaking with both of you today. Thank you so much, David and Jeremy. Yeah, and thank you so much for having us on.